There are times when conflicts arise, and there will be disagreements when those conflicts arise. Sometimes there are people, the onlookers, the spectators, and even the fault finders, the grumblers, they will say that so-and-so in leadership took action too slowly. He let things slide. It did not get addressed at the proper time. At other times, the accusation might be that the leadership acted too quickly, too swiftly. They were rash in what they did. They didn't consider seriously what the real issues were. And it seems that often the critics are not equipped with Scripture. And it may be true, whether leadership or anybody else, someone acts too quickly or someone acts too slowly. That is a reality of life. And that may well occur. It may occur many times throughout life. However, the problem is, whenever people are criticizing those making those decisions, do they ever have a scripture to bring up? Do they ever explain carefully and methodically? Do they ever go to the Bible and say, well, in this scenario that we just face or that we are currently facing, these are the scriptures that apply to it. Let's be... Uh, thinking about this together, pray about it together, consider these scriptures together. That rarely happens. So we will have critics carping and criticizing against whoever is making the decisions, but they themselves are happy to be onlookers and stay out of the mess as much as they can. That should not be the case. The other thing we have to consider, we're going to be studying some passages in the book of Luke and perhaps in the book of Acts. When we study the examples of Christ, the Lord Christ, and his apostles, his holy apostles, and also the disciples of the apostles, we're going to be studying examples presented in Scripture that are examples for us to mimic, for us to repeat, for us to act in the way that they acted whenever they faced dilemmas, whenever they faced temptations, whenever they saw evil, whenever somebody said something evil or sinful or wrong in their hearing. We're going to look at those examples. But many times, excuse makers will say that, well, that was Jesus. Jesus could do that, but we can't do that. Well, that was the apostles. The apostles could do that, but we can't do that. That's not for us to do. We're not them. That's their way of excuse making. However, the Bible does say that we're supposed to be like Christ. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Is that not what Christ did? Denied himself, took up his cross daily. Is that not what he did? And follow the the will of the Father? And we are supposed to follow Christ as Christ followed the will of the Father. Of the Father. That was Luke 9.23. What about when it says 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And when, when Christ explained about the sufferings of this present world that we will experience, he said the following. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The holy prophets, we are supposed to behave like the holy prophets in following righteousness and hating lawlessness. That's the way we're supposed to be. And when we do that, we will be persecuted. We will be hated. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James 5, 17 and 18. With these scriptures, we find that we are supposed to, in terms of practicing righteousness, in obedience, in holiness, we are supposed to do as Jesus, the apostles, and the rest of the disciples did. That's the way we're supposed to be. That excuse, well, that was Jesus, he could do it. That was the apostles, they were inspired, they could do it, but we can't do it. That's not true, it's false, and it's an excuse. If we keep this, these things in mind, let's now turn to the first example in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In this chapter, and the examples we study today, we're going to see examples of Jesus and the apostles and the disciples responding quickly on the occasion, in the presence, even in the presence of other people, responding to sins on the spot, right then and there. Not waiting, not excuse-making, well, let me think about it and pray about it, and then wait three days, seven days, ten days, two months, five years, and then never mention it. They say, I'm going to pray about it as an excuse not to act on it. We're going to see that that's not the case. We have a very familiar passage in Luke 4. When Jesus is in the synagogue, he reads the book of Isaiah. And then he says that this passage has been fulfilled. Verse 21, 421. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then we're going to have something very curious. The people are going to speak well of him, and then he's going to say something, and suddenly rage and hatred arises out of them, and they want to kill him. They want to murder him. Look at 22. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. That's on the positive side. However, doubt arises within their flesh. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? This is an accusation. Joseph's son, the son of Joseph. Joseph is a no-namer. He's from Nazareth. He's a carpenter. He's a tradesman. 
and nothing good, nothing significant comes out of Nazareth, maybe out of Jerusalem, maybe out of Samaria, maybe out of some other big and prominent city, but not out of Nazareth, a town, a small town. So Joseph from Nazareth, why? So you see how they are starting, they, initially they have praise, but then immediately after the praise, they have criticism arising. And when Jesus hears that, does Jesus say, you know, I'll give you some time. You, you should think about it. You should pray about it. Not everybody understands that the first time, so it's okay. And I, I won't comment. I'm just going to pray for you. I love you. And walk away. D- did he do that? No. He didn't do it. What does he do on the spot, on the occasion, at the time? 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. In verse 22, the question, is this not Joseph's son? It was a sinful question. It wasn't an innocent faith-seeking, based-on-faith kind of question. It was an unbelieving question. It was a critical, criticizing question. Jesus knew it, and he didn't leave it alone. He sought immediately to confront it. Verse 23, and he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What are they doing What are the inhabitants of Nazareth doing right there in verse 23? They're scoffing at him. They're mocking him. In this case, it's a taunt. You did it elsewhere. You are famous abroad, but do it right here. Do it right here with the locals, the people who know you. We challenge you to do it. Physician, heal yourself. Get it done over here. Why do you only do it away in other places? Do it right here. We want to see it. They are taunting Jesus that way. And then Jesus, does he oblige? Verse 24, does he go along with it? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. It's the nature of things that prophets are not welcome with those who are most familiar with them. Hometown, relatives, and own household. The people usually hate them because they are very familiar They will pay attention to a stranger, especially if he's exotic, if he's tall and handsome, if he's winsome, if he's eloquent. eloquent. They will do that. But to the local man that they already know, that they've seen since childhood, since infancy, 
brought up, they're going to be suspicious. How did he suddenly become a different person? What happened to him? So no prophet's going to be welcome in his own, own hometown. But I say to you, okay, now he offends them. In verses 25 to 26, he offends them with the example of Elijah. Though the land of Israel had many widows in Elijah's day, and we can read about this in 1 Kings 17, there were many widows in the land of Israel in the days of Elijah, but God didn't send Elijah to help any of the people or the widows of Israel. He sent him outside of Israel to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. God's love for Israel was not shown. Why? Because of Israel's sin. It's an indication of Israel's sin. And the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is not going to do a miracle there because they are stubbornly rebellious against him. So he's not going to do any miracles there if they're going to have that attitude. He's not going to oblige. He's just going to walk away. And that's what God did with Elijah. He wasn't going to help any of the widows of Israel because they were all wicked. So I'm going to go to the land of Sidon and find a widow there, 1 Kings 17. And he helped her. The same with Elisha. Many lepers in the land of Israel, but why weren't they helped? Does God not have already an inclination? Doesn't he have a heart of compassion automatically towards widows and lepers? Especially in the land of Israel? No. No. The offense is, this is a foreigner again. It's a Syrian, an Aramean. 2 Kings chapter 5 is where this is explained. That Elisha cleansed this foreigner, not a leper of Israel. And then, what happened when Jesus responded this way, immediately confronting their sin? It says, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. And then, verse 29, they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. What are they trying to do? Murder him. Did Jesus never read books on the power of positive thinking? Did Jesus never understand positive confession? Did he never know how to be winsome and charming with people? Did he never learn how to make it so that the best result, the best positive sugary result was attained? Did he never learn that? He didn't have that mindset, right? That's why he did this. So then, with the critics, the result was rage and murder. The people who heard those words were filled with rage and murder. Today, people would say, if you say something to an unbeliever, you say something to religious people, and you confront their sin, if it ends up that a further conflict arises, if it ends up that you anger them, if it ends up that they want to isolate themselves from you, or even that they want to commit violence against you and murder you, if it ends up like that, 
then you must have done something wrong. You just ha- find, have to find a better way to say it. Then Jesus sinned. If we need to get the best possible result, that is, everybody believing and saying swell and well things about you, if that's the goal all the time, Jesus was unsuccessful right here. So the question is, do we believe in what's called the impeccability of Christ? Do we believe he was impeccable? Do we believe that he was sinless, perfect, spotless, holy? Do we believe that? Do we believe he was that way? If so, then we need to emulate him. We have to do as he did. Because when we don't do like he did, we are, by our actions, accusing Jesus of sin. If we don't do as he did, we accuse Jesus of sin. Chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verse 29. I'm sorry, not Matthew. Luke. Luke 5, 29. Luke 5, 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors collectors and other people who were reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. They are sharing a meal. Usually people say, Okay, when we're eating a meal, let's keep it calm and cool. Let's keep it light. Let's fellowship first on background and and minor things, let's just learn about each other. Let's say positive things. Let's talk about how the day went. We don't get, need to get into anything serious while we're eating. If we're going to get into something serious, let it be after we're done eating. But let's keep it light, uh, trivial, and small talk. Let's do that at the meal. But notice here, there's a big reception, a great crowd of tax collectors and other people Pharisees and their scribes are also present. Levi, or Matthew, has also invited the Pharisees and their scribes. They're also present. But they grumble at his disciples. Why do you eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Grumbled at the disciples. Why are you doing this? Notice it. It's at the disciples. Why are you doing this? Verse 31, And Jesus answered and said to them. But who answers? Who intervenes? Who's the leader in the group? Jesus is. So though they addressed the attack to the disciples of Jesus, Jesus answers, he intervenes, and puts them in their place. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. Jesus answered them immediately. He intervened and gave an answer. He didn't say, hey, you know, that was a good question. He doesn't commend them for the question because he knows it's not a good question. 
Just like before in chapter 4, it was not a good question. Is this not Joseph's son? All questions are not good questions. All questions are not genuine questions. Some questions are asked in spite. They are asked maliciously. They are asked in envy, in jealousy, in strife, like they did here and in chapter 4. We also notice that Jesus didn't say, well, let's wait and let's finish eating and then we can gather around together and talk about it. Maybe we could do it over dessert or after dessert because after dessert, that's when more of us will be pleasant and happy and content and then we can go back and forth a little bit. We can pull and tug here and there. We can banter some. You see, these are the ingenious ways we think of to soften the mood. But he didn't do that. All he did was answer them immediately while they're eating. Chapter 6. Luke's chapter 6. 6 verse 1. Luke 6, 1 to 11. Now, it came about that on a certain Sabbath, he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. The first example in verses 1 to 5 has to do with picking grain on the Sabbath. They were wrong in this case, and Jesus shows them that they were wrong in verse 3. When David and his men were in desperation, they were fleeing from King Saul, 1 Samuel and chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. When they were fleeing from King Saul, obviously fugitives don't have a lot of food and a lot of supplies, So when they were hungry, they ate consecrated bread as long as they were qualified and the priest made sure they ate consecrated bread. Only the priests were supposed to do it, but in this case, an exception was made. And so the disciples were likewise. They needed food, and so they ate some. And the Pharisees ask a question. Verse 2, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? We have another malicious, attacking question. All questions are not good questions. 
All questions are not genuine questions. And Jesus, he rebuts them in verse 3. And answering, and Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read? Is that the way to answer anybody? The moment somebody asks a question, is that any way to answer? Would we ever dare to tell somebody that? Someone asks us a question, would we ever dare to ask a question in return and in the introduction of the question say, have you not even read? Especially to a religious man, to a leader like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were experts. They knew They had the factual knowledge of the Old Testament. So when he says, have you not even read, he's offending them. Because they not only read, they could probably share many details of that incident in 1 Samuel 21. But the problem is, it's not enough to read. What Jesus means is, you mean you've read it and you claim to be knowledgeable of it, but you have never assimilated the import of it? How could you be so obtuse? How could you be so dull that you read it, but then you don't embrace what it's saying? In actuality, he's pointing out that few people believe what they read in the Bible. Very few, even the New Testament. Very few people believe what they read. He corrects them with a question and his authority. The second one is the synagogue incident. There is a man with a withered hand. It says in verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely. Were watching him closely. Yes, our critics will watch us closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude 16, it says, in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Did Jesus know this? Did he know what was going on in their heads? Verse 8. But he knew what they were thinking. Okay. Imagine ourselves in this situation. We know what our enemies are thinking. They're watching us closely. They want to accuse us of something. The moment that happens, what is our carnal tendency? Okay, then I'm I'm not going to do anything. I'll just leave it alone. And I'll just smile and say, have a good day. God bless you. And I won't do anything. I won't say anything. Correct? We often know what our critics are thinking. We can tell by the look on their face. We can tell from their history. Right? We can tell. And in this case, Jesus knew 100%. He knew what they were thinking. Did Jesus say, I'm just going to drop it. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm just going to walk away. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything to cause a stir. I'm not going to get them angry again. I'm not going to do anything. Verse 8. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. 
He's getting the man to cooperate with him. The tension is rising. Verse 9, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? Jesus asked them a question to which they could not and would not answer. Why? Because however they answer, there would be a response from Christ and he would expose them even more. So they're not going to answer. Sometimes our critics will say, well, you say things and you ask things and you put it in such a way that it makes it impossible for me to answer. Well, yes, if you answer, you, then you have the truth open, openly announced, and then you need to repent. And that's what you don't, that they, they, they don't want to do. They don't want to repent. But it doesn't mean that when we silence them that we did wrong to silence them. Jesus silenced them. Not only did he silence them, verse 10, and after looking around at them all, because he silenced them, he looks around at them all, puts them in greater tension and suspense as to what's about to happen. Jesus doesn't tone it down. He turns up the heat. He didn't put it on simmer. He put it on boil. Watch verse 10. After looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they themselves were filled with rage. There's the boiling heat right there. They were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Jesus has been making people angry at him, enraged at him, so furious they wanted to murder him. Let's continue to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, 957. Luke 957. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Did Jesus sin here? Was he too stern? Was he too harsh? Was he insensitive? Was he unkind, ungracious to the legitimate needs of these men who approached him? In the first case, the man, it sounds sincere, I will follow you wherever you go. Lord, wherever you want to send me, I'll go anywhere. I'll do whatever you want, Lord. People say things like that. This man said it. I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds like a very robust statement of faith. It sounds that way, doesn't it? But every time people say it, it may not be real. So Jesus, his answer, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you ready for that? You said wherever I go. What if it means going to the desert? What if it means going to the wilderness? What if it means being uprooted from your town or from your country? What if it means you're going to have sleepless nights? You're not going to have any shelter. You're going to be lacking food. What if it means things like that? Are you still going to follow me wherever I go? I will follow you wherever you go. Will it still mean that? That sounds very harsh. Think about the, uh, the, the setting. A man says, I will follow you wherever you go. Would we answer like that? In fact, actually, there, it has been said that by evangelical, an evangelical pastor, that this is very harsh. And he was borderline ready to say that this, this, this is uh, like scratching a blackboard. It really, it really is grating against me. And I, I would never do that. Jesus did it, but no, I, that's the borderline what he was preaching from this passage. He didn't say it explicitly, but you could tell in his words, he was very uncomfortable with these three answers. The second answer is follow uh, 59. Follow me, but he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. This is family first idolatry. Family first idolatry. When the family is put first above God, then it is idolatry. It says first. Permit me first to go and bury my father. It sounds reasonable. It sounds logical. It sounds like he's trying to honor his father and mother. Shouldn't we oblige? Shouldn't we say, go ahead, give our blessing to it? Shouldn't Jesus have done that? The man's father just died. But there's something underlying it, and Jesus knows it. Just like in the previous passages with the questions that were asked. There's something more going on, underlying it. And so Jesus says to the man, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That sounds like a cruel statement. Allow the spiritually dead people to bury their own dead, but you go everywhere and proclaim the kingdom of God. Would we ever say this to anybody? Verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. First. Jesus knows this also is family first idolatry and it's an excuse. I just want to say goodbye, but really it's I'm going to take a while to say goodbye and then I'm going to forget I made a commitment or a vow to follow you, Christ, so I'm going to stay with my family. That's really what's going on here. And that's why Jesus says in 62, but Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Immediate answers and very stern, firm, direct, truthful, challenging answers, convicting answers for them to hear.
Luke 10, Luke 10, 38, Luke 10, 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha is distracted and bothered with all of the preparations of the house and the meal. Mary is not distracted. Mary is not lazy, but she knows what's most important. And the Lord is speaking, but Martha isn't interested in what the Lord is saying. It says the Lord's word. So that means he's saying things, he's teaching. But Martha is so distracted with the preparations, she doesn't care about the word of the Lord. But Mary cares about the word of the Lord and understands that the word of the Lord, while he's talking, I need to be paying attention. I shouldn't be worried about the household chores or the meal preparations or something like that. I shouldn't be concerned about that when the Lord is speaking. Not that Mary is lazy or doesn't like household work. Not the case at all. It's the setting, the Lord's word. He's speaking, so pay attention. In other words, Jesus does not believe in multitasking. Pay attention to one thing at a time. But notice also, Martha has the audacity in her anxiety She's worried and bothered, it said, right? In verse 41, worried and bothered about so many things. In her anxiety, she has the audacity of accusing Jesus of not caring, which would be what? A sin. She's accusing Jesus of a sin here. Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me which is telling Jesus what to do. Is that proper? Not in this context. It's not a prayer. It's not a genuine, sincere prayer. She's insisting that Jesus stop sinning and bark an order at Mary while Martha is barking at Christ. Hypocritically, right? And Jesus corrects her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered. He didn't say... Martha, you make a very good point. I was, I was, I'm long-winded. Mary, you shouldn't have been listening. We both sinned in this regard. Okay, let's just stop it and let's get on with the meal preparations so that we can get served and eat and have a good time eating. Jesus doesn't stop it like that. He doesn't concede to Martha because Martha is in the wrong. So he tells her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What did Jesus do in that case? He corrected a woman. That's a no-no today. 
That's a no-no. You're never supposed to correct a woman. But Jesus did. Luke 11. Luke 11, 37. Luke 11, 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he, Jesus, had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Sounds like he should have stopped at that point. He had said enough. But notice in verse 45, And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. The setting here, a Pharisee invites Christ to lunch. That sounds like a a pleasant, happy, cordial invitation. Come have lunch with me. I'd like you to join me in a meal. Jesus, he goes. He's eating lunch with the Pharisee. It doesn't tell us in verse 38 that the Pharisee said anything. Maybe he just had a look of astonishment because it says, and when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. No ritual, whatever traditions of men were kind of washing before the meal. Jesus didn't do it. The Pharisee didn't say anything. Apparently, in this context, it doesn't say the Pharisee said something. Sometimes the Pharisees say something, sometimes they don't, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. Did Jesus say, listen, this man, I just want to make friends with him first. Friendship evangelism. I want to make friends with him first, 
and do it two or three times, have lunch. He invited me, I'll invite him, and then maybe we'll both go fishing one day. And then after that, I'll, I'll tell him some hard things he needs to hear. And besides, he's feeding me lunch, I should not bite the hand that feeds me. I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me. Did Jesus think that way? No. Verse 39, But the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, is that a good way to start any statement? Whenever it's you, you hypocrite, you whitewashed tomb, you Pharisees, you adulteresses, you double-minded, you fool, is that the, a good way to start any conversation? Jesus started it that way. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. That's an accusation of what? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. They're clean on the one side, the outside, but not the inside. In verse 40, he calls them foolish ones. In verse 41, he accuses them of not having anything valuable within Give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. If your inner man isn't clean, your outer man will not be clean, whatever you do. Verses 42 to 44, he continues, But woe to you! Now he denounces them with curses, a curse. And he's eating lunch with the Pharisee. He puts a curse on these Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because they are concerned about tithing mint, rue, and every kind of garden herb, but they neglect justice and the love of God. They should do both, but they are rejecting justice and the love of God. Verse 43, they love uh, pomp and circumstance. Verse 43, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, yes, you like to wear your robes. You like to have these kind of formal, ostentatious words and dress and greetings. That's what you like to do. But you're all empty. There's nothing substantial within you. Verse 44, you're like consumed uh, or concealed tombs. Concealed tombs. People walk over them and are unaware of it. They are unaware that dead men are right there. They're in the midst of dead men. One of the lawyers is offended. One of the lawyers gives Jesus an opportunity to cool it. One of the lawyers gives Jesus an opportunity to back off. One of the lawyers gives Jesus an opportunity to say, Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it that way. Please, let, let me take it back. It was not my intention to say it that way. It was not my intention to insult you. Did Jesus oblige? No. The lawyer said, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And Jesus then rails against them in 46. Woe to you lawyers as well. You weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That is... They are like Matthew 23, 3. The Pharisees and the scribes, 
they say things that we ought to do, but they don't do them. So do what they say, because whatever they're saying from Scripture is correct, but they never actually obey them. So they make other people obey, but they don't obey, based on what they preach. The same here. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. They pride themselves in thinking that, no, 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 no. If I were living a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, if I were living in the days of Moses, I wouldn't have been a troublemaker. I wouldn't have caused all that stress and distress to Moses. I wouldn't have made him uh, say to, to the Lord, Oh Lord, why have you uh, caused me to bear the burden of this people alone? I wouldn't, we would not have been that way. No way. And we would never have been in that company of those men who wanted to stone Moses and Joshua and others. No, we wouldn't have done that. No, no. That's the way they're thinking. They're thinking they're better than their predecessors. But they're not better. They have the same corrupt, depraved human nature. They kill the, Their ancestors, their fathers killed, wicked fathers killed the holy prophets. They also kill the holy prophets because they're going to kill Christ. Then 52, how egregious is this? Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hinder. See, they have the key of knowledge. They have the knowledge of what is right, what they need to do to believe and repent, to be saved from their sins. They know exactly what the Old Testament says. They have that key of knowledge. And there are some people who are sincerely curious and genuine to know, well, I was raised in this religion, and we say we believe in this book, but I want to know more about it. Please help me, and I want to know the truth. They are trying to enter in the kingdom of God, but you hinder them because you give them partial knowledge, and then you heap the traditions of men on them, and you are hypocrites, and you are lawless, so you prevent them from actually entering the kingdom of God. Are these not weighty, serious, and stern words Jesus says against them? At the luncheon table. Would we do that? Would we ever do that? Did Jesus do it wrongly? Look at the result. If we had this kind of a result, and 53, and when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Well, now, now we have people listening to our every word. Oh, I don't want that circumstance. I don't want people listening to everything I say like that. I don't want them to be critics that way. I want them to listen in peace, not in, in uh, envy and jealousy and suspicion. I don't want them listening that way. And also here, th they began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. I don't want these questions. I don't want hostility toward me. I want peace. I want friendship. I want comfort. I don't want hostility. Okay, that's the carnal reaction of today. 
No hostility in speaking the truth to confront sin. If that's the case, if that's what we want, does it comport with what we are reading right here? If what we want is virtuous, if what we want is godly, that in every occasion when we see sin and we dare to confront the sin, and if it doesn't turn out well, then is it the fault of the one who brought up the subject of confrontation to the one sinning? If the, the sinner refuses to repent, becomes very hostile, questions us on many questions us closely on many subjects, and plots against us to hang on to and catch every single word in order to find fault with us. Who's doing the wrong? Did we do wrong to confront as Jesus did, even if the result is hostility or not? The way people gauge today, if there's hostility against what you said, then you must have said the wrong thing, or you must have said it in the wrong way, or you must have said it in the wrong setting. That's the conclusion people reach. If that's the case, Jesus was not only a complete failure, but he was a gross sinner. And he had no grace, he had no love, no kindness. Chapter, chapter 13. Luke 13. Luke 13, 10 to 17. Another healing on the Sabbath day. 13.10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Healing on the Sabbath, synagogue official, he despises it. He instructs him and them by saying, six days, you can do it on the six days, but don't do it on the Sabbath day. Jesus says, yeah, actually, you're right. There are six days. I didn't, I didn't have to do it today. Did he answer that way? You make a good point, sir. No. 15. If he's wrong, he's wrong, and he's corrected on the spot. They didn't wait for the next day. It was on the Sabbath day. The contention arose on the Sabbath day, so it was answered on the Sabbath day. This is not the first time we've seen this. The previous, some of the previous passages we just saw, the contention arose on the Sabbath day. It was addressed on 
the Sabbath day when the contention arose. Same here. Jesus answers 15. And the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites. You hypocrites. He didn't say friend. He didn't say friend. He said, you hypocrites. They feed and water their animals. Why can't this daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, why can't she be healed on the Sabbath day? Are you that obtuse? Are you that so insensitive that you care more about your animals than you care about the daughter of Abraham? What's wrong with you? He corrects them for having warped values. More care for animals than for people. And 17, when he answered them, it says, all his opponents were being humiliated. The opponents were humiliated. They say today, you shouldn't say anything to humiliate anybody. Our goal is not to shame them. Our goal is to love them. It's always to love them. You have to be kind. Be friendly. Say it in a, in a way that they'll receive it. Say it in such a way that they'll pay attention, that they'll consider it. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be mean. And this they would call, Jesus was rude. He was mean, insensitive. And he loved to humiliate them. He had a heart that loved to spite and humiliate his enemies. He did it. He humiliated them on purpose. Further, chapter 14. Chapter 14. 14 verses 1 to 6. We actually have more than one example in this chapter, but verses 1 to 6 for now. Verse 1. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Twice they make no reply. Twice they kept quiet. Why? They wanted to accuse Christ and Jesus puts them on the spot, verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They don't want to answer. So is it wrong to put people in an awkward position in answering when they are sinfully skeptical? As it says in verse 1, watching him closely. No, it's not wrong to put them in their place. Jesus put them in their place and they kept silent. And not only did he put them in their place by keeping them silent, he continued to heal the man. Again, he didn't turn down the heat. He didn't put it on low and simmer. He put it on high to boil. He got them, made them upset so that they made no reply. 
after he healed the man and even accuses them of hypocrisy. In this case, he doesn't call them hypocrites. In verse 5, he simply says, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And our final example here in Luke is Luke 20. Luke 20. He is questioned again. Christ is questioned again. He's willing to deal with the many questions of his critics. Have we noticed that? But how many of today's pastors, how many of today's false teachers will expose themselves to the critics, to the questions of their critics? They don't like to do that. They usually avoid them. And they say, I've got better things to do with my time. I would rather evangelize. As though answering false doctrine is not evangelism. But here Jesus does so throughout this chapter, chapter 20. And in verses 9 to 18, he presents a parable. The parable of the vine growers. The parable of the vine growers. And then the conclusion. Illustrations are always meant to elicit a positive, happy, fruitful result, right? No. No. Sometimes parables are intended, illustrations are intended, to highlight the sins of the people. Like this one. 20 verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. But he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust." The parable of the vine growers. These vine growers are whom? Who are they? They are the leaders of the nation. They had many servants, God's servants, the prophets, preaching to them, and they beat them, abused them, murdered some of them, right? And the Father says, God the Father says, I'm going to send my beloved son. They ought to respect him, but they don't. They put him to death. So what is the proper thing to do to the vine growers? Verse 16, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. They said, No, that kind of thing should never happen. 
No, 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 that's injustice. That's cruel. They should have listened to those previous slaves, and especially they should have listened to the beloved son of the father. That kind of thing should never happen. May it never happen. No, no, not in our case. We'll never do that. We would never, never dare to do that. But Jesus says they will do it. Verse 17. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Who are the builders? The vine growers or the leadership of the nation, the religious leadership of the nation. They are the builders and they're going to reject the cornerstone, Christ. Did they know that he was preaching this against them? Did they know that Jesus was predicting, prophesying that they would murder him? Did they know this? And did they receive it well? Jesus is accusing them of being murderous men. Verse 19. Verse 19. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. He spoke a parable against them. So they tried to lay hands on him. Their murderous desires are showing forth right here. They were these evildoers that he explained. So we have seen. When evil men are present, when they ask questions, their questions are malicious questions. Every question is not necessarily a good question. It depends on who's asking. It depends on the scenario depends on what's being asked. It depends on those things. Every question is not necessarily a good question. But when evil is presented, spoken evil or conducted evil, whatever the evil is, did Jesus say, I'm not going to say anything right now. I'm just going to pray about it and wait for the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom. No, that was not his response. His response was, he knew what was right, what was wrong, he knew what was biblical, what was unbiblical, and he confronted it as needed. And even if it created more hostility, even if it made his enemies hate him even more, he still did it. The issue is, speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 Speaking the truth is love. So let's speak the truth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.